everybody this morning. You guys doing okay? All right, good. We're in John chapter 2. We'll be in verses 13 to 25 this morning. Uh, before we read the text and kind of look at the text and dig in this morning, I want to let you know, some of you may be guests with us. We s- we're studying through the book of John, uh, and we've been amazed at what we've been seeing here. Uh, we study verse by verse through the through different books of the Bible, and uh, we've learned by experience what Augustine said, that John is uh, shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Uh, it is one of the reasons that the book of John has been given so often, recommended so often to new believers, is because it is his sole intent is to teach us about who Jesus is, to reveal to us why he came and what he's here for. And so it's often given for that reason, because it's so easy to see and understand, but then what we begin to learn and as we turn the diamond and look at the different facets of the word is there's so much depth and so much beauty in the word and so much depth in the book of John and we'll see that again uh, even this morning. Uh, So I want to read the text to us this morning and then we'll look at it and study it a little bit further. I'm glad that we get to do that this morning together. Verse 13 chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away from here. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews, when he said this, they, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he, is, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We've got a very interesting story this morning that is going to reveal something about who Jesus is and the expectations that he has on our lives Uh, on those that would call themselves Christ followers. And John is intentionally merging or moving the story to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and pairing it with what we studied last week, the water turned into wine. He's doing that for intentionality, to tell us who Jesus is and why he has come. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, and maybe you've studied it before and you're familiar with the other Gospels, they actually record a similar scene, but the story of Jesus cleansing the temple is at the end of, of Jesus's ministry. In fact, it's used in several of the Gospels as the catalyst. It's, we're told that it's the catalyst for why he was arrested and, and ultimately crucified, what he does here. But John has it at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And some scholars argue that there's actually two different temple cleansings. But the majority of scholars say, remember John's thesis, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, that he writes these things that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah that we would know that he's the Son of God, and by knowing these things, we might believe on him and have life, life everlasting. And so what most scholars say is that John has taken this story, and he has put it at the front of Jesus' ministry, 
And he's done that for specific and strategic reasons. To show us who Jesus is and why he has come. And so it's important for us then, if that's the case, to not miss what John wants us to see in this passage. So this morning we're going to see four things. We're going to see first what Jesus does. He cleanses the temple. We're going to see why he does it, his zeal, zeal for the holiness of God. And then we're going to see the authority by which he does it. And then we're going to see the only response, the only proper response that we can give or anyone can give once we begin to realize who Jesus really is. And so let's look at that this morning. We're going to see first Jesus' cleansing or what he does. Verse 13 says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John intentionally captures this feast, the Passover feast. It's a pilgrimage feast in the life of Israel. And it was originated from Exodus chapter 12. The last plague, there was a promise of the death of the firstborn to all throughout the land. And on the eve of that plague, God speaks to Moses, speaks to Israel, and prepares the people and says, I want you to sacrifice a lamb. I want you to take the blood of that lamb and spread it over your doorpost. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, he says, The blood shall be a sign for you. I will see the blood, and I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you. So we see both the holiness of God, but also the grace of God, that he provides a way of escape or a way of covering. And so Jesus, we're told, has already been told in John chapter 1, verse 29, is our Passover lamb. John is intentionally connecting these dots for us. And what we're seeing here is at the time, the yearly annual feast of the Passover, when everyone from throughout the Roman Empire would come to Jerusalem, that's when Jesus is going up to the temple, up to Jerusalem. He's going along with the crowds that are going to Jerusalem. Now what's interesting is, if you're traveling from the northern regions of the Roman Empire all the way down to Jerusalem, or you're traveling from wherever, you're traveling from far distances, it's not common, it was not common for you to bring your oxen or your sheep or your pigeons over those long distances. And so what the temple leaders, the religious leaders, what the people began to expect was that out of convenience, the temple would have the lambs and the sacrifices that we needed when we got there. We'll just worry about it when we get there. And so they would travel to Jerusalem. They would travel to get there to buy their animals, whatever, the oxen, the pigeon, the sheep. And when they got there, they have another problem that also created big business. And that was we just traveled from the northern reaches of the Roman Empire, and we have totally different money, totally different currency. So what do we do? And so they established money changers for the people to then bring their money, exchange their money. They would use then this specific tax or a specific currency to pay the temple tax and also to buy their animals. And so there was this convenience of worship that was happening here. The people were traveling from long distances. They were basically not having to worry about anything until they got there, and we'll take care of it. All-inclusive worship experience, right? And so that's what's happening here in this story. And Jesus enters into this scene. The temple is filled with animals. It's filled with uh, these money changers. And it's also filled with people coming to worship. And we see in verse 14 what Jesus does. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, 
John records for us he does five things here. He, he made a whip of cords, he drove them out, he poured out the coins, he overturned the tables, and he told those selling the pigeons, don't make my father's house a house of trade. Matthew and Mark add an extra thing. So Jesus and John is driving out those who sell the, and the animals themselves. Matthew and Mark say he also drove out all who purchase. So you can see how disruptive this is. You can see how dangerous what Jesus is doing. He's sending everyone who's come to worship away from the temple. He's sending everyone who's selling the items of worship away from the temple. He's disrupting and overturning their tables. Meek and mild, little, cuddly Jesus is angry and flipping tables and passionate and zealous here. This is not the Jesus that we often like. This is not the Jesus that we often portray. But this is the Jesus that we need. And what Jesus is doing here, and what we're going to be told here, is his motive for this is zeal. Zeal for what, though? Zeal for the holiness of God. He burns with anger, he comes in with passion, he comes in with zeal, and he flips the tables, and he's doing this because of zeal. And that's what leads us to our second point. There's three things here that we see in what he says, what the disciples remember, and generally what he's doing that are informed by Old Testament verses and context that we often miss because we're not as familiar with that. What we learn is that, that he is zealous for the holiness of God, and what he's entered into is completely the opposite. So how many of you have ever been to the Fairhope Art Festival or Shrimp Fest? Or Okay, two people, right. Okay, so the majority of us have been to one of these things, right? My favorite street is the food street, right? I want you to imagine the food street. They're not concerned with holiness. They're concerned with hot dogs, foot-long corn dogs, right? And that's the scene here that Jesus has entered. Imagine us having a worship service on the food street at the Fairhope Art Festival or Shrimp Festival or the Hangout, whatever you want to call it. it, it it's not going to happen. On top of that, just so ha it just so happens that where this is happening is in the court of the Gentiles. So their only opportunity to worship, the nations, to come to the temple, their only opportunity, they're being crowded out while a marketplace is being established in their place of worship. And so that's the scene, that's what's happening here. And we see why Jesus reacts in what he says, in what the disciples remember, and then how he is acting in general. First, he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. The other gospels record a different phrase. They say, a den of robbers. You've made my father's house a den of robbers. And that is a direct reference, a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah the prophet is sent by God to the people of Israel because they've believed a lie. They've started to believe that they can simply go into the temple and they'll be safe, but they can live outside the temple however they want to live. In other words, they can live with complete disregard for God, complete disregard for holiness, complete disregard for obedience during their everyday lives, but if there's ever any time of, of insecurity or ever any time of worries, just pay your dues, get into the temple. And what the false prophets that were teaching this began to say is this common phrase, the temple, the temple, the temple. In Jeremiah 7, 4, God says, you have believed falsely in your false prophets. The temple, the temple, the temple will not save you. 
And here's what he says in the later verses. He sends Jeremiah the prophet to the Lord's house to amend their ways, which is another way of saying repent. And he says in verses 8 to 11, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then enter into the temple before me and say we're delivered? In other words, will you live however you want outside the temple, but when you come into the temple, you say we're we're saved? God will protect us? The reason they believed this was the false prophets were teaching the temple is God's safe place. The temple is God's. It's his place of dwelling. You're the people of God. You're in the promised land of God, the place of God. God's not going to do anything to harm his temple. God's not going to do anything to to jeopardize you. God's not going to do anything... And they were teaching them that you could live however you want with complete disregard for obedience and holiness. And if there's ever any worry, just come to the temple. In other words, they had turned their relationship into the holy God of the universe into a transaction. Into something they do in order to be right before him. And what he says, do you do all these things and then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? What are they robbing? They're robbing God of his holiness. They're robbing God of the expectation of what he has placed on his people. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Their trust is not in God. Their trust is in the temple. Their trust is in their transaction. Their trust is in just get in the temple and you'll be saved because that's God's safe place. He's not going to do anything to harm that and hurt that. Their trust is falsely located. We're his people. If we just go to the temple, we'll be fine. What he says in verses 12 to 14 directly contradicts this. In verses 12 to 14, he promises, I will decimate the temple if that's where your hope is. And I will cast you out. What do we see happening? here we have people who are entered into the temple with no regard for god with no regard for holiness with no regard for obedience they've turned a relationship with god into convenience we'll worry about worship when we get there we'll worry about what we're supposed to do obedience and holiness when we get there in other words obedience and holiness is for a time and a place not a life time we'll worry about it then and they've reduced a relationship to god to transaction Jesus enters in and sees all of this. It's not simply that there are animals in the temple. It's that there are no hearts in the temple worshiping God. They're not there to worship him. They're there to check off their list. And Jesus comes in to this mindless busyness in the temple with these people without reference to God. And he makes a whip and he drives them out. And he casts them out. And this is something that we have to recognize in our own hearts, in our own lives. I think you can see the application without going into great detail. But we are in danger of doing something very similar to this. We're in danger of thinking, oh, I'll worry about holiness and obedience when I get there. I'll worry about holiness and obedience when I am there on Sunday, but however I live outside of Sunday is is just, it doesn't matter. I'll worry, or we think... We think things like, I have to go this Sunday. 
oh, I have to check off my list, or I have to read the Bible. Instead of I get to, because of a holy God who sacrificed his son for a relationship. We're in danger of reducing our relationship to God to transaction. We're tempted to do the same thing. Think about this. Your home mortgage is not something you think about every single day. Most of us don't. We, when it comes to our payment, we usually only think about it when it's due. And for most of us, we've automated that so that it's an auto deduction from our bank account. But that's not how you think about your spouse. You, at least if you want a healthy marriage, ought to think about your spouse daily, regularly, always, often. And it's not because you have to, it's because you get to. Do you see the difference? The difference is transaction versus relationship. They're two totally different things. And that's what Jesus is calling here. That's what God is calling his people to. He sent his son to die on our behalf that we might have a relationship with God not simply pay God back with our religious performance. We have to ask the question, which kind of relationship do we have with God? Which kind of relationship do we have with his bride, the church? Is it transactional or is it a relationship? What was happening for Jeremiah in his day and what's happening in Jerusalem was not simply people living in blatant sin. That is happening, but it's people who also, to an even greater degree, who are living without God or a reference to God in their mind or in their hearts in a daily way, trusting Him always. Instead, they're trusting in their transactional relationship, checking off their religious performance. And God says to Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, I will decimate the temple and I will cast you out. Jesus enters into the temple and decimates their trading and casts them out. And he's coming and he's asking and calling us to more. He's calling us to a relationship and to obedience and to holiness. There's a second thing, not only what Jesus says, but also what the disciples remember. They say in verse 16, the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a direct quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. And the full quote of Psalm 69, 9 says, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, what burdens God also burdens me. And because I'm so burdened by God or for God and his holiness and obedience and what he's expecting of me, the context of Psalm 69 is the people around the psalmist are oppressing him or mocking him. In other words, you're so holier than thou. It might be because he is. It might be because he's actually pursuing holiness. And often that's what happens to us. We encounter people that, that are actually pursuing God, and we make jokes about it, and we diminish it. We, 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 see, we encounter people that are pursuing holiness and are pursuing obedience, and we, we say um, they're just whatever, and we kind of dismiss them. But in fact, they may be actually living the way we were intended to live. More than that, we experience that kind of oppression and persecution and and and. and people making fun of us and mocking us for pursuing holiness and obedience. The psalmist, at the end of the day, what he's saying is, I'm burdened for what burdens God. I'm broken for what breaks God's heart. I want what God wants. I want holiness, and I want obedience. His zeal for holiness comes at great expense to himself. What do we see in John chapter 2 and in the entire gospel? 
Jesus enters into the temple and because of his zeal, he is burdened for what burdens God. He is he is zealous for holiness. And what happens? He is ultimately crucified because of it. It costs him at great expense his own life. Is this true of you and I? Are we burdened by what burdens God? Are we broken for what breaks God's heart? Do we long for what God longs in our own life? Holiness and obedience. Do we hate that which God hates? One of my favorite books, it's in the top ten list for me in terms of influential books uh, on my life is is, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. And he says, as we grow in holiness, we grow in our hatred of sin. And God, being infinitely holy, has an infinite hatred of sin. So in other words, as we grow closer and closer to God, as we grow more and more in our understanding and knowledge of, of the word, what we begin to see is first how sinful we really are. We're far more sinful than we ever dared believe. We're far more sinful than we ever thought we were. And when we become aware of that, and when it's revealed to us, we want to we want to in, in immediately get rid of it and cast that. We want to do that because we're growing in Christ likeness. We're growing closer to the heart of God and desiring Him. The same thing's true in our marriage. In our marriages, we for those of you that are married, some of you would ad- agree with me. You didn't know how sinful you were until you got married, right? You didn't know how selfish you were until you got married. And when you realized it, it maybe took a little while, but you finally realized, wow, this is not acceptable. I can't live this way. I can't act that way. I can't say those things. I can't do these things. And you want to get rid of them. And it's not because you have to. It's because you get to because you want to honor your spouse. The same is true in our personal spiritual growth. As we grow in holiness and grow in our awareness of the word of God, are we growing in our burden for what burdens God. How do we do that? We grow in our study of the word. We grow in our relationships together and, and rubbing shoulders together and being challenged by one another and encouraged by one another and, and, and confronted by one another when there's sin in our lives. And as we do that, and as we fill ourselves up with, with the truth of the gospel, and we fill ourselves up with the truth of his word and, and grace and holiness, we begin to crowd out sin we also begin to fill up and desire more holiness a book that i'm reading right now uh, brian argo recommended it to me it's quickly moving in the top 10 list it's called a gospel primer for christians it's by milton vincent and he says this indeed as i perpetually feast on christ and all of his blessings found in the gospel i find that my hunger for sin diminishes and the lies of lust simply lose their appeal. Hence, to the degree that I am full, I am free. Eyes do not rove, nor do fleshly lusts rule, when the heart is fat with the love of Jesus. In other words, this is what uh, the Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers talks about, is we fill up our understanding of the gospel. As we, as we displace idols and fill up our understanding of the truth and the, of the word of God and the gospel, we don't have room for sin. We don't have room for the desires of the heart. Not only does it crowd those things out as we constantly feed and feast and fill up ourselves on the word of God and the truth of God and the grace of God and the holiness of God, 
we also begin to fall in love with what we're studying and reading and learning and knowing about who Jesus is and who God is. And it moves us to follow his decrees. And so what we're seeing here is that the disciples remember and understand the reason that Jesus is flipping tables is because he's so burdened and so passionate and so zealous for the heart of God, for who God is, for what he his, it's his holiness. He is, he is zealous because it's his father's house. Notice the language there. It says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Uh, the actual literal, trans- literal translation is, take these things away. Do not uh, make, my, make my, the house of my father the house of trade. It's possessive. Why? Because Jesus and God are one and the same. He has the heartbeat of the Father, and he is zealous for holiness. A final, really important text that informs this really sheds light on all of Jesus' actions in this passage that show us why he's doing what he's doing and the zeal that he has is a text that we've studied as a church previously. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. In Malachi, Malachi promised that the coming Messiah would come, and he says he'll come suddenly to his temple. And he'll come like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. Anytime you see the word suddenly in the Old Testament, it's bad news. It means that God is coming in judgment. But notice how the Messiah, the the future messenger of the covenant is coming. He's coming suddenly in judgment, but he's not coming and going to crush. He's coming and he's going to cleanse. He comes as a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. That is used throughout the Old Testament in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, and here in Malachi. And it's always first used of the nation of Israel. Why? We've already read it in Jeremiah. They thought they were a special prized nation and that God would never do anything to them and therefore they could live however they want. And God reminds them, the furnace starts with you. And the furnace is always intended for our good. The furnace is intended to take metal that has impurities to melt it down so that the impurities rise to the top. It's called dross, and that's scooped off and thrown away. And what's left? Pure, precious gold or pure, precious silver. The furnace is always part of the Christian life. We don't, we don't get to escape conflict. We don't get to, God doesn't, Paul Tripp says, God doesn't remove us from our circumstances and God doesn't remove us from difficult relationships because it's the circumstances and the difficult relationships that he uses to shape us and form us and make us more holy. What do we often do when we face trials and circumstances? I want out of this. God, get me out of this. Instead, we need to be praying, God, what do you want me to learn in this? What do you want to do in my heart here? What are you changing about me? Where do I need to confess and repent and amend my ways? He's calling us to holiness constantly. And that's the purpose of the refiner's fire. That's the purpose of the fuller soap. It's always to cleanse, not to crush. It's to purify. This is what sanctification is. Big word. It's what spiritual growth is in the Christian life. It's constantly being conformed and conformed into the image of Christ. That doesn't just happen. It happens through difficulty, adversity. It, it happens through struggling to understand and study the word. It happens through community together. So here John is presenting us not only with what Jesus does, but also why he does it. He does it because of the zeal for the holiness of God. The zeal for the holiness of God 
in our lives. The other thing that, that comes up here is a common theme in the book of John, and that's the authority by which he does this. Who does Jesus think he is? He can just march into the temple and just kind of sweep things out and clean up things. Who does he think he is? In fact, that's what the religious leaders ask. Who do you think you are coming in here and cleaning out our objects that we use for worship and, and telling us that we can't do this? And who do you think you are? Justify yourself. That's the question that they ask. What sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? What's your authority to do this? What's interesting is they don't ask necessarily specifically who he is. They ask what he can do. They, they see what he's done, and they know what he's done is Messiah-like. And what they're doing, what they're saying is, only the Messiah can do what you, only the Messiah can do what you do. Are you the Messiah? They're, they're perplexed. They're confused. They're shocked. They're angry too, but they're also trying to figure out who he is and who he thinks he is. This is a common theme throughout John. Authority is going to be something that comes up over and over again. And why? Because John wants us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, he's not the Messiah of our own making. He's the Messiah we desperately need. If, if we were writing the story, we would have a Messiah that never demands anything or asks anything of us. Wouldn't we? Because we like good old pal Jesus. We like homeboy Jesus, but we don't like King Jesus because King Jesus demands that we obey, commands holiness in our life, can put his finger in our chest and say, you need to cut that out, stop that, remove that. We don't like that Jesus, but that's the Jesus that we get. He is both grace and holiness, and we like to talk about grace, but we often like to kind of brush aside holiness. We like to talk about the word and say, I like that part of the word, but I don't like that part of the word. We like to look at Jesus and say, man, I like cuddly Jesus that's in the manger, but I don't like angry Jesus that's flipping tables. But what do we get in the word of God? Both. He calls us to holiness and calls us to repentance we live in an anti-authority age we don't like people telling us what to do we don't like people telling us what to believe we don't like to get people getting in our business it's somewhat the spirit of the, the worldview of our day which is postmodernism. Postmodernism is I in essence saying that there is no absolute truth there are no uh, ultimates there are no absolutes there is no objective reality I it's really all up to to you and i to figure out on our own and that's why you see and you read so many articles of people being offended. Why everything is so offensive today. Because when you jettison objective truth, then what are you left with? Subjective personal opinions and feelings. And we like to argue on those levels because we, we've jettisoned truth. We live in an anti-authority age. But Jesus is Messiah. And that means he's king. And if he's king, he has authority over all kings. That includes your life and my life. And that means we must submit to him. A word that's not popular and we don't like. So prove it. That's what they ask here. Prove it. 
How do we know that you have the authority to cleanse the temple? How do we know that you have authority over all things, including my life? Jesus gives them an answer. They ask for a sign, but he gives them an answer. Jesus doesn't often immediately do what everybody asks him to do. It's just one of those things that he can do because he's Messiah and King of the universe. He doesn't have to answer to us. He doesn't often give an answer or give a sign immediately to all of their requests for signs. But he does give them an answer. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Destroy, in this context, it means to, to loosen or to break down or to kill. Kill this temple, and I will raise it up. Now, they misunderstood. They heard in purely natural terms, and they thought he meant the temple building. But John gives us the context, verse 21. He says, no, he was speaking about his body. He's talking about himself. What on earth is Jesus saying here? Jesus says he has the, the power and the authority to do housekeeping in the temple because he has the power and authority to do housekeeping on earth. He has the power and authority over the physical temple because he has power and authority over something greater, death. And if he can conquer death, then he can also conquer something greater, a greater death that you and I face, spiritual death. And Jesus is answering them, I will raise it up. Notice what he says, destroy, kill this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. This is, we, we missed this, one of the, we were talking about it in pastor's community, one of the guys pointed it out, thought it was amazing. Notice he says, I will raise it up. Dead things don't raise up dead things. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have the power to raise myself up. I am the power. I am the word. I am God. I have ultimate authority over death. That's my authority over this physical temple. I have authority over all things. I'm the one with power. I'm the one that will raise myself up. You guys are always looking for signs. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 16 and in Luke chapter 11. You're always looking for signs, but no sign's going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. What on earth is Jesus saying? They, the, the, the rabbis and the religious leaders immediately, look that up. Somebody go find that out. The sign of Jonah. We're looking at the story of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of a whale, and he's there for three days, and then he stood up alive. Jonah never performed a sign. Jonah was a sign. You're going to be like Jonah? You're going to die? and be raised again on the third day? That's what Jesus is saying. I have authority over death, and if I have authority over death, physical death, then I can have authority over spiritual death, the greater death. I came to do housekeeping in the physical temple because I came to do housekeeping in your heart. Paul says the temple of the Holy Spirit. He came to transform our lives, and he has authority to do that, and he has the power to do that. So that leads us to the only proper response. Why does all of this matter? What does all of this mean? How does it inform Jesus' actions here? Why is he flipping tables? Why is this story put at the beginning of Jesus' ministry to help us understand who he is? What's going on here? The first thing that we have to understand is the big picture. Holiness and impurity are incompatible. Holiness and impurity are incompatible. And we see that in the physical realm, and it's intended to teach us something about the spiritual realm. In other words, Jesus enters into the physical temple and he, he cleanses it of impurity. 
because he has come to cleanse our hearts of a greater, our, our spiritual temple, the heart of something greater, sin. We see story after story of Jesus encountering things that are broken and not right and him restoring it. He enters in and he, he encounters lepers and, and he touches them and they don't contaminate him, he cleanses them. He encounters people that are blind and he gives them sight. He raises up the dead. All that is broken is restored in Jesus. And all of those physical examples are intended to show us the spiritual. That he is holy and he has come to evict impurity from this world and from our hearts. Why? Because he's the Messiah. He's the king. He's the the king of the universe. Second, we have to understand what this story is telling us in light of the, the story we just studied last week. I think this is fascinating. As you look at last week, if you remember, we, we talked about Jesus turning the water into wine. What did we say wine represented? Joy. The joy had run out. And what does Jesus do? He comes to restore joy. He comes in grace. What do we see in this story? What's missing in this story? Holiness. And Jesus comes to restore holiness. What we have at the beginning of the Gospel of John is the two halves, are the two halves of the Gospel itself. Jesus has come in grace and he has come in holiness. He comes to extend grace and he comes to call us to holiness. And John is showing us these, these two go hand in hand. Holiness and grace go hand in hand. The last thing is our only proper response. If all of this is true, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he has power over death, if he has power over spiritual death, if he can come in and cleanse the physical temple, then he can come in and cleanse the spiritual temple of my heart. If he can do all of these things, then John shows us the only proper response. Verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John has been very intentional about using this word believe. It's the, the one word that's used 98 times, the most out of any word in the Gospel of John. He showed us the disciples and their response in the previous sections that we've studied. And when they believe, they always make a confession. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are God. You are. They constantly, their belief is in who Jesus is. But what we're shown here are religious leaders, and in verse 24, 23 to 25, fringe believers who don't believe who Jesus is, they believe what Jesus can do. And there's a stark difference. There's a stark difference. Look at what he says. John intentionally is contrasting these two different approaches or responses to Jesus. Verse 23, it says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But this is a shocking and startling verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. The word believed in verse 23 and entrusted in verse 24 are the same word. In other words, they believed in him because of what he could do for them. Jesus did not believe in their belief. In other words, they believed because of what he could do for him them, or they believed because... They, he passed their test, or they believed because of some transactional relationship, but he did not believe their belief. In other words, he recognized their belief as only religious superficiality. He realized it was only skin deep. It did not change their heart. Their belief was not in who he was. Now, how do we know that? 
Look at what Nicodemus says down in chapter 3, verse 2, just a few verses down. It says, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless, what's the right answer? You are God. What's Nicodemus say? Unless God is with him. Nicodemus is shedding light on the belief of, of verse 23. They believe because they think he's, oh man, he can do some good magic tricks. He, he's a pretty swell guy. He's pretty nice. I don't like the whole table turning thing, but, but look, he, otherwise he does these signs and miracles. That's pretty cool. They believe on s- the surface, but they don't believe who he is. They don't believe that he's actually the Messiah. They don't actually believe he's God, unlike all the other disciples. And yet again, we're reminded that we have to inspect our hearts. We have to respond appropriately to Jesus. We have to see who he is. We have to recognize he doesn't want our religious performance. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want our religious checkbox of attending church and paying our dues and circling Jesus kind of on the periphery and kind of being aware of who he is. He wants our lives. He didn't come for transaction. He came for transformation. He came for our hearts. John is wrapping up and concluding here by yet again calling for the only proper response. Do you see Jesus' works as we study this gospel? Do you see the authority that he has? Do you recognize who he is? Do you see the holiness that that he offers, that he comes to call us to? Do you recognize that he's the Messiah? That he is God come to us in holiness? Do you recognize he's also the Savior, God's Passover lamb, come to us to be our substitute? Holiness and grace, that's who Jesus is, and that's what he's called us to. And if this is, if we recognize who he is, then the only proper response is to believe, is to cast our lives on him, to submit our lives to him, to give our lives to him him this is the message of john this is why he's writing this is what he wants us to see to know and to respond to do you see jesus this morning and jesus as the messiah holy and lifted up and also jesus as the passover lamb sacrificed as your substitute let's pray Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you have and you will illuminate your word and that you would pierce our hearts. That that you would challenge us and show us that you have, that, that, that Jesus has died for us on the cross, offering us hope, offering us grace. And in response, I can't help but live obedient and holy. Not the other way around. I don't live holy and obedient to gain and earn God's grace. No, instead, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Lord, thank you for what's not said in the last verses of 23 to 25. You know the sinfulness of man. You know our hearts. You know our deceitfulness. You know our rebellion. 
what's not said, and yet you still went to the cross and died for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for substituting yourself, for offering us something we will never have on our own, access to God, holiness, God himself. Remind us of that this morning. Challenge us. Convict us. May we not be transactional people. May we be people who have submitted our lives in relationship to God. And may it transform our relationships outward. May it transform our church. May it transform our community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're new